We talk about the partisan divide when you mix that with this sort of general distrust of government, that it makes corruption more likely. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. My name is Christopher Starke. After one year, we are delighted to welcome Gary Kalman back on the podcast. Gary is the Director of Transparency International's U.S. office. The interview in this episode covers the first year of Gary's new role at TI, the successes they achieved, especially with regard to the law on beneficial ownership, And Matthew and Gary also discussed the latest edition of the Corruption Perception Index and the relationship between political trust and corruption. So you already see that we have a lot to cover today, so let's dive right in. This is Matthew Stevenson, and today I'm just thrilled to welcome back to the podcast Gary Kalman who is the director of Transparency International's U.S. office. Uh, Gary, I was privileged to be able to have you join the podcast almost exactly a year ago. I think it was right at the end of 2019, and then the episode uh, went live early in 2020 when I'd spoken to you right before you started as the director of Transparency International's office in the United States. You were, had, until that point, been serving as the executive director of the FACT Coalition, And now I have the opportunity to speak with you again one year into your tenure as Transparency International's U.S. director. And so maybe the best way to kick off our conversation today is to ask you a bit about that first year of experience, what you've learned, what you feel like has been uh, successful in terms of your anti-corruption efforts in the United States, where the biggest challenges uh, remain, and whether anything looks different to you now one year into this new position than maybe it looked a year ago when I had the opportunity to speak with you about your plans for the coming year. Well, thanks, Matthew, both for having me back. Uh, always glad to be here. And uh, in terms of sort of a year retrospect and, and some of the positives and challenges, uh, I will say that uh, a year ago when we were talking, I was pretty bullish on trying to convince the world that we could pass a bill that would require the U.S. to collect beneficial ownership information. The biggest challenge I think I had with allies uh, who were all with us and supportive was that we could actually win. So I just want to say that a year later, the good news is over President, former President Trump's veto, uh, the bill did actually get passed on January 1. So the very latest uh, it could get passed. So that, as you say, you know, what colors my experience? I think over the last year, that effort was probably the biggest in terms of understanding how these issues Uh, can be done in a bipartisan manner, even in the divisive society and, and political culture we live in, but also some of the challenges of working in that kind of environment. Uh, and let me say that that's not easy. I think there are ways to do it, but I think it's going to be amongst the biggest challenges we face. Can I ask you to elaborate a little bit on that? Because I will forthrightly acknowledge that I was one of those people four years ago, not even like a year ago, four years ago when Donald Trump was elected, Uh, and I was blogging about how unhappy I was about this turn of events. One of the things that I confidently predicted completely incorrectly 
was that the push for beneficial ownership transparency for the crackdown on anonymous company ownership, to which you were just referring, was not going to go anywhere in the Trump presidency. And thank goodness, I was completely and totally wrong about that. And in subsequent blog posts, I've tried to figure out why I was uh, so wrong about that, happily so. But you were actually directly involved in the process on the ground working these issues. And I think it might be very interesting for those in our listening audience, not just in the United States, but all around the world, to get a better understanding about how you and your allies in the advocacy community managed to make headway on this issue in what looked like such an inhospitable environment. So, you know, without going too much down into the weeds of of all of the nitty gritty, from a strategic perspective, maybe can you offer some insights about how to make progress on important anti-corruption issues or good governance issues in the face of a political environment that, that one would think wouldn't be terribly receptive to those kinds of issues right now? Sure. I mean, I, you know, I think we need to continue to think through sort of how this happened and how we did it. I will say that uh, one of the key things that I believe we did right, and I'm not saying we did everything right. If we did everything right, we would have passed. This was a 12-year campaign. So if we did everything right, we would have passed it, you know, 11 years ago. But I do think that there were several things that happened, uh, much of which we did to create our own opportunity. But also, I will acknowledge, be the first one to acknowledge that we had a couple of lucky breaks as well. Let's start with the things that we did right. And that was in Washington, when people want to do things in a bipartisan fashion, they often start by trying to get people from both part, you know, mem- members of Congress from both parties. If they can't do that, then they'll go to former members of Congress to go back and talk to their colleagues. And I think we felt that in this divided environment, that wasn't going to work, that people are just very nervous, especially in the Trump years, that they just weren't confident that oh, if my buddy in my party supports it, then I will too. And so we made a concerted effort not to necessarily focus on members of Congress early on, but in fact, to focus on constituency groups that could then move those political parties. And so working with law enforcement and national security and some of the conservative leaning think tanks, as well as, you know, the left to center and lefter uh, folks as well, that that then we were then able to take those constituencies and work with them to go to Congress and then building that support from the outside to the inside made a huge difference. And it wasn't just getting postcards and letters from constituents, because with all due respect, as important as I believe beneficial ownership is, it's not one of those things that's going to get people rallying in the streets. But it is something that a number of key groups through which both sides really care about wanted to step up and this became a priority for them. And because of that, it was we were able to open doors that we otherwise never would have opened up, folks that we were talking to that never would have spoken to us before. So the, I think that it's sort of that outside approach, but using the constituency groups in particular, where we did think we could get some traction. And then I will also, you know, look, there's been a lot of great uh, media work on this. Uh, I, you know, the ICIJ, OCCRP, a number of the investigative journalists, both in the United States and around the world, had some blockbuster stories. I mean, my first week on staff, the Panama Papers came out. Uh, no, I'm sorry, I started a week after the Panama Papers came out. And then the Paradise Papers and the FinCEN files and a number of leaks. And so 
that helped to elevate the issue as well. So I don't want to discount that because that certainly gave us hooks that we otherwise would not have happened. But I do think that it was thinking about those constituency groups that normally, uh, if you're on one side of the political spectrum, you would never go to and even think to sit down and talk to. Uh, we spoke to the National Foreign Trade Council and the U.S. Council on International Business. Uh, when the Chamber of Commerce was still against us, they were willing to take a look and talk to us because we had gotten some individual companies that were willing to step up. So it was all a combination of bringing together and reaching out to the groups that are unlikely allies and starting with them rather than getting a couple of members of Congress and seeing if they can push it across the finish line. So that's fascinating. And it invites uh, the question of how portable or generalizable is this advocacy strategy for other issues that the anti-corruption community in particular cares about? Obviously, anonymous company ownership is not exclusively or specifically an anti-corruption issue, but you know it's something that clearly like the reason that Transparency International is, is involved and in, in some of these other groups is because it's got a, a corruption dimension to it. Now that you have um, an even broader portfolio for Transparency International focusing on anti-corruption issues in the United States, do you think that the strategy that the coalition pushing for greater corporate ownership transparency deployed in that context could be used to similar effect with respect to other issues that the anti-corruption community cares about? Um, and if so, which issues and how? So the answer is some and some. Uh, I do think that it translates more than most people think, but I don't want to pretend it translates to everything. Sometimes you are challenging the direct interests of some of these special interests and there's nothing you can do. And so therefore it does make it difficult. But I think in a far greater number of cases, there is either a way of reaching out to people that normally you wouldn't work with that can be successful. I'll say that's one sort of bucket of strategy, but it's also the case that you can sometimes divide communities uh, that are the opposition. You asked for a couple of specific examples. So let me give you a couple uh, of examples. One is I know that at the FAT Coalition, at least, we worked on increased transparency of corporate taxes, payments to governments that corporate multinational corporations were making around the world, and to report that information publicly on a country-by-country basis. Uh, it'd be an anti-bribery and anti-corruption measure. Well, the business community and the multinationals don't want to do that. They would prefer not to have this information made public. On the other hand, I would say that the investor community and many of the folks on Wall Street would love to have this information. They want to know where the where the tax liabilities are. Or is it sustainable? Um, what countries are they actually operating in? Because that all goes to risk. Now, that's not to say that if people, you know, everybody knows that Apple pays low taxes. So I don't think that it means that investors are looking to run away from any of those multinationals, but they all want to put it into their risk model. So the FAT coalition versus the entire business community, not really a fair fight. Wall Street versus the rest of the business community, a much fairer fight. And so I do think that there are ways of dividing. That's the first thing. The second thing I would say is the beneficial ownership fight was one in which we were able to build relationships and some trust with some of these organizations. It wasn't just a marriage of convenience for this one bill. And so since then, I've called back some of these groups to say, hey, we're looking at it, and we'll talk more about this later, but an agenda to take it 
to, you know, step, we did step one with beneficial ownership and that was great, but there's a number of problems with corruption in the world and money laundering. And here's the next four or five steps. Would you be willing to sit down and talk about those uh, and see if there's any common ground? And I think we're getting people to sit down and talk with us who otherwise would have dismissed us or would have assumed that we would demand purity and they would just, you know, it, it would be an extreme position that they couldn't sign on to. Um, but we're now able to have those conversations and happy to, when we get into the agenda, talk about some of those. But that's another valuable tool that we now have because we have built some trust. That's terrific. And I definitely want to ask you about the specific agenda items that you, your colleagues and partners and so forth will be working on. But before we get to that, what you just said touches on an issue that I think I probably asked you about a year ago and that I've talked about with with many people who work in an advocacy capacity. And I'd love to get your perspective or your additional perspective on that issue. And that's, I'll frame it as follows. Anti-corruption activists or advocacy groups are sometimes are in the mode of denouncing, exposing, naming and shaming. They adopt a much, uh, a kind of a confrontational posture vis-a-vis the government of the day or powerful groups like bankers or multinational businesses. At other times, and I think this latter uh, approach corresponds to what you were just describing with respect to your lobbying effort on corporate ownership and um, other kinds of transparency measures, involves a more collaborative as opposed to a highly confrontational approach to addressing corruption issues. And different groups take different approaches. It seems like both ways of doing, and it's not an either or choice, but it does seem like there's a tension between these modes or postures relative to the government or other powerful constituency groups. And again, I'm not asking for an either or choice, but can you talk to me a little bit about whether that tension is is a real thing or whether I'm misperceiving a, a dilemma that's not really there? And if it is a real thing, how you think about managing those kind of cross pressures on the one hand, take firm and unambiguous stands, calling out those who are either corrupt or who are not doing enough to fight corruption, but at the same time, um, wanting to maintain enough of a conciliatory or collaborative posture so that people take your phone calls and want to talk to you and think of you as a reasonable person and so forth. Well, I think people need to think about the life cycle of a campaign and the many facets to actually winning on an issue. This is my humble opinion, but I think that you do need both, that their only intention when people don't understand the need uh, for both. That is, if it wasn't for the early years in which Carl Levin and the Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations in the Senate actually held hearings calling out specific companies for the corrupt practices, for hiding money and moving money, uh, illicit money, banks trying to cover up transactions and all of that Those were pretty confrontational hearings, but it put the issue on the map. And I think that they're continuing through today. There were groups that were calling out the bad behavior to highlight it, to put it into the newspaper, to do the naming and shaming that gets the issue to be of prominence. And without that, all the sort of conciliation in the world is not going to work because there's no reason for the opposing entity to even come to the table. Once they come to the table, then the question is, what do you do there? And is there 
a common ground that is a compromise with integrity that you can fashion so that you can actually get something done and you're not just, sometimes you have to try and just steamroll the other side and, you know, do what you need to do. But oftentimes that doesn't work. And we've seen time and again where no progress gets made for years and years and years. And people get, you know, it's common. People get burnt out. They get frustrated. Um, activists say, I'm going to move on to something else because I, I don't see anything happening here. The public certainly doesn't see any benefit. And so you need to balance moving forward with making sure that the, the calling out and the naming and shaming that you talk about is done in coordination with the larger campaign. And if it's done strategically, I don't think there is a tension. I think all too often people don't sort of think about them as two sides of what needs to get done. And therefore, it's all one or all the other. And then groups get criticized or you know, complimented for, you know, we all pat ourselves on the back because we're able to call, you know, call out uh, bad behavior and, and corruption and cited, and we all will go drink champagne at the end of the day, but then nothing happens. And so I do think that you need both. I don't necessarily think their intention uh, if they're done in a coordinated fashion. How hard is that coordination? I'm, and one of the reasons I ask is because as an outsider, you know, again, I'm on my ivory tower and I observe all this from a distance, but from my outsider's perspective, it seems like the individuals in groups who emphasize more of the naming and shaming and the individuals in groups that do more of the let's sit down at the table and hammer out a compromise, let's build a coalition, are not only often different individuals in groups, not always, but often different individuals in groups, they seem dispositionally different. Like they're not always necessarily all going to be easily amenable to sitting around and coordinating a grand campaign. They all have their own groups and their own interests and their own modes of being in the world. So how, how do you accomplish, however imperfectly, the kind of coordination you were just describing so that you're doing the, you're bringing the outside pressure in the right way and coordinating that in the right way with the more of the inside game? I mean, I, I don't think that the beneficial ownership fight was the first uh, campaign to get it right. I don't think we're going to, I hope we're not going to be the last. I think there are examples where it's been done before. And I think, you know, there will continue to be, but I think a lot of the time you do see things go down in flames and fail because the groups are not behaving together, or coordinating, but, you know, look at some of the other, I mean, I don't think anybody would say that the black lives matter movement has been uh, quiet uh, wallflower, and yet criminal justice reform step one. There's still, you know, there's a lot to do. So I don't mean to say they solve the problem any more than we solve the problem of money laundering and beneficial ownership. But it is a critical first step. And so you saw the Koch brothers sit down with the more progressive organizations and uh, hammer out a compromise for the beginning of what people hope will be continued criminal justice reform. So I do think that there's groups that have gotten it right um, and have been able to figure out sort of that that balance um, and the coordination. I think it takes a certain amount of political maturity to be able to understand that both sides have their role and not to just assume that one side is either unstrategic or somehow undermining your effort to move forward. And if you have that a group, you have a set of groups that have that political maturity, then I think you can get it done. But we, we have seen a number of times where things just crash and burn because they're not able to, to figure that out. So this is all fascinating, um, but I do want to shift gears a little bit and talk a little bit more about the specifics of what you see as the anti-corruption reform agenda in the United States. I and mean, we've been talking so far about 
general approaches to advocacy campaigns that could apply on any number of issues. But of course, now, especially in the position you've been occupying for the past year and going forward as the director of Transparency International's U.S. office, I know that you and your colleagues have been thinking about what's next on the agenda. So uh, could you please share with our listeners what's next on the agenda? What are the, you know, two, three, four main bullet points of the things. Now that the benef- now that you got the beneficial ownership, transparency is a good first step. What do you imagine will be the main focuses of your uh, advocacy work and your coalition building work over the next, call it two to five years? And I don't know exactly when this podcast is going to run. So, you know, in the near future, we are, uh, Transparency International U.S. is going to come out with our 21 commitments for 2021 uh, hokey, but it works on a broad agenda of what we think needs to get done to tackle global corruption um, and illicit finance. I think your question is the right one, which is, okay, that's great. There's a million things that needs to get done, but what are what are sort of the top priorities um, and how did you how do you go about choosing them? And I think there's a, they fall into a couple of buckets. One is, which is going to be a, a top priority for all the groups, is now that we passed the law, uh, for anyone who's been in Washington for more than an hour, you know that the implementation of those laws are critical. And so we can celebrate the passage of the law, but we are now going to have to sit down with the agencies, uh, Treasury and others, uh, to hammer out the implementation and make sure that the rules are correct and effective and don't open up any loopholes that were unintended where bad guys could then exploit and undermine the law. So that let's just put that out there as the top priority. But beyond that, I think there is a combination of we've built some really good bipartisan ties. We've worked with organizations. How do we keep that going to further and expand an anti-corruption agenda? And I think there are a number of things that need to happen. Um, So that's one sort of set of considerations. Let me say the other set of considerations, though, is what are sort of the big next steps? Like beneficial ownership, we've always said that's a foundational reform that you could put more money and more cops on the bead and more people investigating. But if at the end of the day, those investigators are going to run into a brick wall of lack of ownership information, it's not the only thing that needs to get done. But if you don't do that, then it doesn't matter what else you do. So what is now the next big step that we need to take? And I think the next big step is gatekeepers. That is the people who are the so-called gatekeepers to the financial system, those people that the lawyers, accountants, real estate agents, private equity, uh, et cetera, et cetera, that work to bring in money into the U.S. financial system. Uh, The banks currently have full customer due diligence. That is, they have to know uh, something about their customers, who they are, that they really are who they say they are, but then also that these people are not illicit actors. So uh, there is a, so how do you break that down? That's a lot of players. The Treasury Department, as a result of rules or laws going back a couple of decades, have the authority to regulate some of those actors. In fact, at the end of the Obama administration, they were ready to finalize a rule requiring full due diligence requirements, customer due diligence requirements for private equity. And the rule never got finalized, but it's sitting there. So if we go back and we say you should just update this rule and finalize it, I think that can be done pretty quickly. And you're talking about a multi-trillion dollar market, private equity market. I think the U.S. private equity market is something like $14 trillion. So we believe that there is, especially with some of the other rules around banks, that more of that money is going into other 
financial sectors and private equity is certainly a key concern. I think also uh, we've talked a lot about in, on your podcast and in the blog, you've mentioned the geographic targeting orders. These are the things that uh, the Treasury Department has required in a dozen metropolitan areas, uh, beneficial ownership information collection for high-end cash financed uh, real estate deals bought by company in which the purchaser is, is a company. Well, as those cities implement those orders, we have every expectation that bad actors are going to then move to the cities that are not covered. And so why should they be targeted and temporary? We should make them permanent and we should make them nationwide. So those are two, I think, issues that can be done through regulation. And the uh, current administration has shown an openness to these issues and a concern for these issues, which we can talk about later. But we think that those are are two very viable options. Um, I think in terms of the legislative front, there are a number of things that people are looking at. We'll have to see what uh, sort of rises to the top. You know, there's a interest in trying to criminalize the demand side of bribery. So we already have the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act for the actors who offer the bribes. But what about the people that are asking for the bribes? Uh, we should make it expensive and uh, for them to do it and have there be consequences to try and reduce it on both sides. We've actually been looking at a bill. We're still trying to sort of figure out the details of this, but providing a safe haven for whistleblowers who blow the whistle in foreign countries on corruption to have a safe haven in the United States and enhancing uh, some of the some of the measures that al- that would allow for that. I think there uh, we're also looking at something that's uh, was almost made it through last year, and so this would sort of be a nice uh, win, which would be the Crook Act. Um, and the Crook Act is would create a sort of an emergency response fund uh, for where there's uh, opportunities or emergencies that come up to protect uh, against corruption uh, and foster democratic institutions in other countries. So those are some of the things we're looking at Congress and some of the things we're looking at in terms of the administration. Terrific. So all that sounds great. One thing I did want to ask you about that we haven't really talked about as much directly, but but seems like like something we should address is what we've learned from the past four years and from the Trump administration specifically about the constraints or absence of sufficient constraints on corruption or other forms of wrongdoing at the highest levels of the executive branch in the United States government, the president, the president's family members and close allies. So there's a critical perspective that says that Trump Calling Trump a kleptocrat is probably an exaggeration. He wasn't you know, looting the U.S. Treasury the way that um, you know, presidents or dictators in other countries have, have treated the Treasury as their own private bank account. But certainly the issues with respect to conflict of interest uh, at the level of the president, the president's family were beyond anything we've seen in living memory. Uh, concerns about the politicization of uh, the institutions of justice, especially the attempts to politicize the Department of Justice, some of which were more successful and others which were unsuccessful because of, of staff level resistance and so on and so forth. Um, the the concerns about, for example, uh, President Trump's uh, receipt of, uh, for his, his business's receipt of payments from foreign government entities and state governments in alleged violation of the Constitution's Emoluments Clause. The, the day we're having this uh, podcast interview, I believe just this morning, and it'll be a little bit after that by the time this airs, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court dismissed the Emoluments Clause lawsuits as moot. 
uh, because President Trump is no longer in office. So this cluster of issues has caused a bunch of people to say, hasn't the Trump administration exposed the inadequacy of U.S. laws and institutions for dealing with high-level presidential corruption? And don't we need to do something about that potential problem, even if we expect that the Biden administration will not exhibit the same sorts of problems. Um, do you share that sense that the Trump administration experience demonstrates not just that Trump personally was venal and unethical, but that his presidency revealed weaknesses in the system of laws, institutions, norms, et cetera? And if the latter what should we do about that? Is that on the TI agenda in any meaningful way? Sure. So a couple of things on that. Absolutely. Um, so I, when I, the TIU office, when it was formed as uh, an office of a global anti-corruption organization, the focus of our work is a small, uh, hopefully growing staff uh, and growing office, but the focus was more on global anti-corruption efforts and you know, we focused on the U.S. role in helping to foster an anti-corruption movement globally. That's not to say that we won't be focused, uh, we won't be working on or supporting our allies on the domestic anti-corruption agenda. And uh, in fact, Scott Greatech on my staff used to work with uh, several of those organizations and was very involved in passing any corruption measures at the state level of the kind that you're talking about. So the answer to your question, of course, is absolutely that the conflicts of interest, the manipulation of the political process, very alarming uh, from what we've seen. And so I think the, the sort of package of bills, the grand anti-corruption, domestic anti-corruption agenda that we uh, see is wrapped up in uh, what is referred to in Washington, at least as HR1, which is the first bill that to be introduced uh, in the House. And I think it's actually S1 now in the Senate as well. And so it's the first bill to be introduced and debated. I think everybody believes it will pass the House. I think the, the Senate is a tougher question because you need 60 votes to overcome a filibuster. And the, it is a very large package. And some of the pieces of it have a more partisan tinge to it. But look, it, you know, you're talking in addition to the, the sort of straightforward conflicts of interest that you discussed there was also, I think, one of the more egregious things, in my humble opinion, that happened last year uh, was the firing of inspectors general. I mean, these are people that are literally there to identify waste, fraud, abuse, corruption in government and for doing their job. Uh, when COVID's funding was was passed, you're talking about trillions of dollars in government funding going out uh, to fight a pandemic. The folks that were in charge, front line, to investigate and make sure that that money's actually getting to the people who it was meant to go to, the people that needed it, the people who it would help the most, that there were indications that it was not a perfect process and there were problems in the system. For pointing out the problems in the system, they were fired. And that just should be alarming to everyone who cares about combating the pandemic, uh, let alone good government. So I think that those package of reforms, and they extend pretty, it's a pretty extensive package. Uh, it includes, in addition to some of the things that we're talking about, it includes campaign finance reform, it includes election reform, redistricting, protecting the census, uh, a variety of integrity issues. It is a far-reaching bill that we wholeheartedly support and hoping that 
obviously we hope the whole bill would pass, but if the whole bill can't pass, then maybe there's bipartisan pieces that can be taken off and we can make a little bit of progress on specific issues. I want to pick up on something you just mentioned a moment ago about Obviously, you, like me, an American citizen, you're based in the United States, but you're a representative of an international organization. Transparency International is probably the leading uh, global organization focused specifically on corruption. And on the subject of the, the previous administration, the Trump administration, some have argued, I have argued, but on the basis of nothing more than impression anecdote, that the Trump administration's lack of attention to ethical issues to put it mildly, has had an adverse impact on U.S. leadership on anti-corruption issues worldwide, that U.S. soft power, if you will, in the anti-corruption issue has diminished as a result of the Trump administration and its apparent lack of concern with things like conflict of interest. From where you sit, is that impression accurate? Have the, has the last four years significantly undermined the U.S. ability to lead on anti-corruption issues or to push an anti-corruption agenda more broadly in the world? Or do you think that whatever the Trump administration's own ethical problems, the U.S. stature and influence on the anti-corruption issue has not been substantially adversely affected? So that's a really good question. And, you know, I wish I could produce a study that said, oh, yes, as a matter of fact, Transparency International or one of the international bodies has done a study on this and has found X, Y, and Z. I can't do that. So I can give you some anecdotal uh, support for some of my impressions is probably as far as I could go. So at the same time that here in the United States, we were trying to push for beneficial ownership transparency, uh, Canada was doing the same. And as we were being stalled, so was Canada. Now that the law passed into law. We received emails from advocates for transparency in Canada saying we now believe the floodgates are open. So what happens in the United States does have an impact, we know, in other countries. We have seen you know, a rise in authoritarianism in various countries around the world. Uh, is that because uh, they believe the United States is stepping back from a role and is not, it's not going to face the kind of sanctions that it otherwise would? You know, I, I can't draw that straight line with evidence, but one has to suspect that there's at least some kind of correlation or a concern. So if we see in the next few years, if the U.S., as the new president has said, uh, wants to re-engage in the world, and if that begins to hold some of these actors accountable, then I think we can safely say that the U.S. absence um, at least permitted, if not encouraged, uh, these actors to to be emboldened and do the things that they did. Look, I there's now a concern going around over the weekend. Uh, it and maybe people knew this before, and I'm just late to the table. But that Dan Gertler, who was on the global Magnitsky sanctions list for his activities in mining in the DRC, um, the Trump administration on their way out. I don't want to say pardon because that's not the right word, but they were willing to reissue his license to do business after being sanctioned. That's very alarming. If anybody deserves to be on the global Magnitsky sanctions list, a list that sanctions people for human rights and corruption abuses, it would be Dan Gertzler. I mean, he was involved in a number of extremely problematic business dealings in mining in Africa. And so 
I think that those kinds of messages have to make people, uh, bad guys, feel that they can be protected. And therefore, yes, my belief is that it was encouraging and um, uh, at the very least permitted uh, bad actors to feel more bold. So I want to turn in just a moment to the Biden administration and and what you see is opportunities or challenges in that administration in particular. But there's well, there's one thing I feel like I, I'm obligated to ask you about, even though I kind of don't really want to. And that's the new corruption perceptions index, which uh, as we speak, I think it's not officially out. But by the time this airs, it will no longer be embargoed. It will be publicly released. And as of course, uh, you know, and I've been allowed to know, a headline that is likely to come out of this is that the United States score on this index has reached, I think, its lowest point since TI started keeping track and that there's been a, a notable decline and, and so forth. I say I'm hesitant to ask, to ask about this because, as you probably know since you follow my blog, I think that people make far too much of individual countries' relatively small score changes from year to year, which I think are almost always statistical noise and usually don't mean anything, and everyone writes headlines with narratives out of this. But, but nonetheless, since my fairly confident prediction is that by the time this interview airs, there will already have been numerous you know, other blog posts or media stores or whatever written focusing on the headline that US CPI score drops, et cetera, et cetera. I wanted to get your perspective, your individual, you know, Gary Kalman's corruption perception, since you follow corruption issues in the United States as closely as anybody. Do you think the problem of corruption in general in the US has been getting steadily worse? Do you think it's worse than it was in 2012? Not that, The question is not, do we think it's a serious problem? Of course, we think it's a serious problem. But I want to get your sense of whether you think there is a significant, meaningful worsening in the general problem of corruption in the United States, which again, I predict most of these news stories will say that the new CPI uh, tends to show. Sure. So uh, I will say this, that since this won't come out until after the CPI is released, but yes, uh, it will say that the U.S. dropped to its low level, lowest level since 2012, which really is a point at which the methodology was overhauled. So it's sort it's it's fair to say that it's it's the lowest level in sort of the current modern CPI index, if you will. It is true that the amount of the drop was not in itself from one year to the next statistically significant. I agree with you, and I think all of TI would say that this drop was not particularly significant. I think the interesting thing is the trend that over the last several years, it has continually dropped. And that is a concern. And it puts the U.S. on a country to watch because the U.S. started the decade, you know, in very high up and it's now going to be somewhere in the middle. I think it is a concern and it's a concern for a couple of reasons. And these are the reasons that we're concerned about corruption. I mean, the we talk about the partisan divide when you mix that with this sort of general distrust of government, that it makes corruption more likely. And it make, you know, and the harms that result from it, therefore, are going to continue to rise. If people don't think that government is ever going to do anything good, and it's it's not a, a tool that we collectively use to try and address collective problems, it's easier for people to use the system the way 
the pre President Trump did and people not seeing it as, quote, any different than the previous person. And that slide is, I think, a big concern. And it is something that we need to take a look at and watch. I am hopeful that the new administration will reverse that slide. That remains to be seen, obviously. So that may be more of an answer than you wanted. But my my general impression is, yes, a year-to-year -year drop, not significant. The overall trend is significant, coupled with what we know is the growing distrust of government and the partisan divide in this country, which has created even greater distrust of each other, is something that allows for greater corruption, which then increases uh, the harms that we see. So I want to turn in just a moment to the new administration, but before we leave the exchange we were just having, I want to pick up on, on a certain aspect of what you just said and maybe press you a little bit on it. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm disagreeing or just pushing you for a bit of clarification. So you, you talked about how an absence of trust in government and a partisan divide is something that allows corruption to flourish. Um, and that may be, but I could see a plausible argument going the other way, right? That it's precisely when people are distrustful of government, that they're paying attention, that they're skeptical, they don't take things at face value. And uh, partisan, the partisan divide, yeah, it has many problems associated with it, but it means both parties are aggressively monitoring the other and exposing their wrongdoing. I mean, it may be that the deep partisan divide is one of the reasons that once the Democrats retook the House of Representatives in the uh, 2018 midterms, that they were so aggressive at scrutinizing the Trump administration. So can you maybe unpack for me and for our listeners a little bit more about the connection that you're drawing between polarization and distrust of government and an increase in corruption? Because again, if I were just sitting again in my, alone in my ivory tower and I were trying to figure out which way the arrow goes, I could tell a story that, no, actually a certain amount of distrust and a certain amount of partisanship and party polarization probably increases the rigor of scrutiny uh, and, and attentiveness to potential government malfeasance and will increase the checks on government. So, so why is that not right? Well, I think that it is the history of this country for that people have a certain level of scrutiny they want in their government. And as a transparency organization, we are inherently distrustful of just letting the government blindly do what it wants. I think we're talking, and maybe my language is imprecise, and for that I apologize. I think there is a, a very large distinction between uh, healthy oversight and healthy questioning of authority and a complete breakdown of any kind of social contract in which you believe that we could collectively act to further the public good. So maybe um, there's better language to talk about the degree. I mean, look, is there any administration going back to the history of this country where there was zero corruption in the administration? I'm not a presidential historian, so I could be wrong, but I'm going to put my money on the fact that I'll bet I could find some level of corruption in every administration going back to the founding of this country. And yet we sit here and you yourself were talking about the level of the Trump administration's corruption and that it raises alarm bells that we hadn't seen before. And that's what I'm talking about, that there's a breakdown of the social contract. This isn't a healthy oversight. I mean, as I said, 
I have been part of an anti-corruption movement that is focused on not trusting government to blindly behind closed doors do what it wants to do. That is very different from what I think we're referring to when we talk about a breakdown. That's a very helpful clarification. We don't have that much time left, but I want to make sure we spend at least a little bit of time talking about the new administration. So as you and I are having this conversation, we're less than a week into the Biden presidency, so we don't have a lot to go on yet. But there's been a flurry of executive orders, and there have been a number of um, personnel decisions, not only at the level of cabinet appointments, those are the things that make headlines, but already some sub-cabinet positions as well. I'd very much like to hear your perspective looking forward with the agenda that you described before and that it's outlined in the, what was it, 21 things for 2021 or whatever it was, what your perception is of the new administration, what we can glean, if anything, from the early signals about what this administration's priorities are likely to be in the area of anti-corruption, how it's likely to think about that issue or frame that issue. Basically, what do you? what is your sense so far of the Biden administration and its approach to anti-corruption related issues? As you say, we're very early on, so we need to see how it all plays out. But I would have to say that the early signals that we're getting and what we're seeing in terms of uh, certain personnel, uh, certain prioritization, the outreach to various, uh, you know, groups and outside advocates has been encouraging. When you take a look at appointments to the Securities and Exchange Commission, um, some of the appointments in Treasury, uh, some of the other appointments uh, at USAID, the National Security Council, you're talking about people who have a history of recognizing the importance of corruption and the damage that it can do in the sectors that they're responsible for overseeing. These are not people who suddenly woke up yesterday and decided that, oh, politically, it's smart now to be on the anti-corruption side, but you can go back several years, if not more, and see some writings, some activity, previous government experience uh, and actions where they were part of problem solving, recognizing that they need to tackle corruption. So I I am encouraged by that. The president continues uh, to talk about, or within the administration, the Summit for Democracy. We're trying to figure out exactly what that looks like. It's not really formed yet, so can't say a lot. But the fact that one of the three pillars is an anti-corruption pillar and recognizing that that's a key component for a functioning democracy and a rule of law society, I think is is certainly encouraging to us and makes us believe that there is opportunity for us to move forward. Well, great. Um, actually, there's so it's so easy to become depressed and despondent when talking about corruption, corruption-related issues, but that's such an optimistic note. Maybe it's the perfect place in which to end our conversation, especially since I've already used up, I think, more of your time than I meant to. Uh, but this is great. This is extremely informative, uh, very helpful. So thank you very much uh, for taking the time. More importantly, thanks to you, your colleagues at TI, your former colleagues at the FACT Coalition, and everyone else for all the work that you have done on things like the Beneficial Ownership Transparency Bill and other advocacy efforts to improve the the anti-corruption and transparency framework in the United States. So uh, again, this is uh, Matthew Stevenson on Kickback, the Global Anti-Corruption Podcast. My guest for today's episode has been Gary Kalman, Director of Transparency International's U.S. office. Gary, thank you again. Maybe we can talk uh, yet another time, maybe a year from now, and do another annual update. I would be delighted. Thank you so much for having me. 
Thanks for listening to today's episode of Kickback. If you want to learn more about Gary's work at Transparency International, check out the show notes of this episode. Make sure you also listen to the first interview we recorded with Gary about a year ago, in episode 24. We also recorded interviews with other TI chapters, for example Colombia and Sri Lanka. Make sure to listen to these as well. If you want to receive more corruption-related content via social media, follow us on Facebook and Twitter under at KickbackGAP. We would also appreciate it if you could use your own social media channels to post about Kickback and recommend us to your friends and colleagues. Kickback is a joint production by the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network and the Global Anti-Corruption Blog. It is made by Niels Kürbis, Matthew Stevenson, Jonathan Kleinpass and me, Christopher Starke, with music by Kaihan Golkar. That's it for now. Have a great week.